Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm here with Evan Ratliff of The Atavist and Max Linsky of Longform. Hey, you guys. Good morning. Uh, this week on the show, very exciting one, uh, Frank Rich of uh, longtime New York Times columnist, uh, current New York Magazine writer, and of course, the executive producer of Veep. Uh, this was quite possibly the most pleasant show to prepare for that I have ever done. I said, I, <laughs> just watch I, a lot of Veep. I came home and I was like, ah, I'm sorry to, to my girlfriend. I'm sorry. We have to watch three seasons of Veep back to back over the next two nights. <laughs> and it was great. That show gets real good. Yeah. No, I, I had, I had actually kind of uh, stalled out like midway through it and uh, the power through deeply enjoyable. I've been looking forward to this one. I'm glad you I'm glad you made it happen. You went to the uh, New York Magazine office. Uh, we taped this at the New York Magazine office. You may hear um, uh, cab drivers honking aggressively below us. That's all part of the New York flavor. They actually arranged for that to happen. That's outside. actually, um, Jenna actually added that as extra audio <laughs> just so you could get a feel for what New York's really like. Uh, Stock honking. Uh, Max, how about sponsors this week? MailChimp is sponsoring the show this week. And uh, the thing we've been telling you guys about, Freddie & Co., the little shop they've got opened. Yes. It's a not-for-profit shop. It features uh, creative people in the MailChimp community who are making great products. And they've got a little sale, a little promotion Ooh. going on for July 4th. You can get free shipping on whatever is in the store. And if you uh, uh, purchase something, again, yep. it's not for profit. It's just going to go and help things out. You get a little uh, sticker, a little Freddie & Co. sticker is going to come with your package. Are they going to send us some of those stickers? I mean, buy something on Freddie & Co. and then you can get a sticker, man. Okay. Cool. Help out. Okay. Fantastic. And now here's Aaron with Frank Rich. If you love the theater, there's nothing more fun than being able to talk about it to a readership, particularly at a place like The Times, which just directly hits that small but hearty band right. of, of, of regular theater goers. Um, and I did it for a bit more than a decade. Um, now I would argue that theater is, is, it was a terrible time for theater when I was doing it. 42nd Street had not been reclaimed. Many theaters were, were dark much of the time. A lot of it was after the late 80s crash, um, so it was hard to get investors to invest in plays. Everything was struggling. Disney hadn't come in yet. All this big money hadn't come in yet. Now, you know, the idea that there'd be a show like Hamilton becoming a national sensation 
was unheard of in the theater of uh, when I was viewing in the 80s. Be, that, no one would have imagined such a thing, even when there were hits. I was thinking about that when I was coming in here because I, I, I don't really follow the theater. So mm-hmm. um, Hamilton is one of the only theater stories I know this year. And if you had gambled to me, like, a major storyline in American culture this year will be a Broadway musical... I would have rated that somewhere around the Trump candidacy and, and likelihood to happen. But you're totally right. And by the way, that w- when I was reviewing it, would it would have been unheard of. When I was a child and falling in love with the theater, when I was still you know seven, eight years old, Broadway theater was central to American culture. It was the last gasp of that. It was the period of sort of the end of Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller. Rodgers and Hammerstein, The Sound of the Music, My Fair Lady. Were um, you seeing these live, or are these coming to you as records? Like, as someone in D.C., what, like, what, what is your relationship? I started by listening to records. Yeah. You know, my parents would bring home records, and then I would, uh, and I think this is a common story of people who fall in love with the theater, you assiduously read every bit of text on the then LP uh, jacket, and then beg your parents to take you to theater. And so I'd see what local theater there was, but also there were Broadway touring companies that played Washington. And I'm, the first show I saw, I, I feel there was a method to my parents' madness. It was a touring company of a hit Broadway musical from the mid-1950s called Damn Yankees. The premise of Damn Yankees, which is still done, and there's a movie version, was that the Washington Senators, then my home team, uh, and I was a baseball fanatic, which always was last in the American League, would beat the Yankees because a hitter uh, made a Faustian deal with the devil. It was like the Faust legend, but about, and it was incredible. And, and that was, uh, if you were a, a Senators fan, and this is the old Washington Senators that would later leave Washington and become the Minnesota Twins, um, it was like a wet dream, even though I wasn't old enough to be having a wet dream. My God, the ultimate fantasy that... You'd beat the Yankees, which, who were always in first, and win. So that's what's got me started. When you said, wow, I love this, what did you feel like your relationship was to it? Were you going to try and break into it? or? Very good question. I, um, I didn't know. And I, I hung around the one, this is pre-Kennedy Center in Washington. It was a theater that still exists downtown called the National Theater. We are in a very active day for Broadway. I so often bought standing room or hung out that I was hired as a ticket taker. So that was my big breakthrough. And then, of course, uh, I didn't obviously mix with the people on stage or backstage. When I got to college, I tried acting a, a bit. I, I didn't like it, and I wasn't very good at it either, and I didn't do much of it. I really loved journalism. I'd always been involved in school paper in high school, and I decided I really liked writing a about the theater and other things rather than being in the theater. And yet, you know, maybe I should have given it a shot because uh, the past five years or eight years really, I've been involved with television as a producer and it's sort of like being in the theater and I really love it. It's completely different from being a critic or, or even a feature writer writing about theater or TV. Being a critic can alienate you from the people who are making this thing that you very much admire. Oh, yeah. I was, it was fascinating to me because I thought, gee, I love the theater. That's where I'm coming from. But people just loathe, loathe me and, and, and my reviews. It, I should have realized that because that was true of my predecessors and it's yeah. been true of my successors. It wasn't really an issue for me because 
I had a clear sense that my mission was to serve the readers of the paper, and I wasn't going to say, write a review and say, oh, you should see this play because it's about a worthy subject, I don't know, the Holocaust, <laughs> and it's, the people who are doing it are great people. I was facing a very tough audience of readers that didn't want their, to be patronized or have their time or money wasted. And I never saw theater people because I didn't go to opening nights. We didn't even cover, we covered last previews. I never, to this day, I've never been to the Tony Awards. I wasn't part of any of that. So I didn't have any social life that involved the theater. I had a couple of friends that predated my being theater critic who um, became playwrights, one of whom became a very celebrated playwright, uh, the late Wendy Wasserstein. And I simply never reviewed, reviewed her. Mm. Uh, and the entire time I was at the, reviewing. I mean, was that strange to live this life where you were so intensely focused on this creative uh, world, but you you yourself were not uh, inside it? Especially as someone who's now been inside one of those worlds in, in a writer's room. It's sort of apples and oranges because um, I took my own writing seriously and I and I tried to to write really well about the theater, not just be a consumer report or hand right. out grades. To me, that's the easy, everyone, you know, s someone can have the same opinion as a, cr as a critic 100% of the time. It's unlikely to happen. But let's say someone hypothetically did have the same op opinion as me about every play. The difference between me and that person is I had the challenge, and to me it was a creative challenge, of explaining why I reached that opinion and also of trying through language to recreate the experience, good, bad, or indifferent. Because when I, indeed, when I was growing up in, in Washington, and there, most shows I'd read about, like in the New York Times, I couldn't see. I mean, my parents did sometimes take me to New York, but most I missed. The critics I admired, and I read critics in any New York newspaper I could or any national magazine I could, were the ones who essentially gave me the gift of, here's what it's like to see this particular play that night and make you feel as if you were there in the flesh to have that vicarious experience if you couldn't have it in real life. So that was a real challenge for me and what, you know, I may have succeeded or failed from time to time, but I, that's what I was trying to do. So I, and also I was very um, emotionally invested in the institution of writing uh, for the times and what was, you know, sort of its last, arguably its last great period, you know, just before the whole newspaper business started to change. When you made that leap from writing, you know, writing all these different places to the Times, you're the Times reviewer, you're, you're a, a authoritative, definitive voice in theater. Do other objectives other than that put the person in the seat um, in the audience come in? Is there a larger intellectual and sort of critical, like, thinking about the theater as a whole and the direction of, of the theater, or are you still just like a kid in a seat uh, in that situation? I tried to be a kid in the seat because what I most remember to this day about the childhood experience of going to the theater when I was ignorant about the theater was to not know what was going to happen when the curtain went up. It's the most, and to this moment, it's the most electrifying, aesthetic experience I can imagine. And so, for instance, when I was reviewing... I never read preview pieces. I didn't read features in the arts and leisure section the week and before a show was opening. I didn't read scripts in advance. I mean, obviously, it was a revival of a classic. I knew the script going in. But anything new, I wanted to go in cold and have that try to, as best I could, uh, recreate that childlike experience. What marked the end of your theater writing tenure? 
A number of things happened. I, I, first of all, the, the theater itself had really declined in terms of, I don't mean quality, but in terms of production. So little was being produced. You know, if you've, if you've reviewed five August Wilson plays or five David Mamet plays or five Stephen Sondheim musicals, what are you going to have to say about the six except it's a little better or worse than the last one? You, you, you've expressed yourself about, and often case, artists you admire to a fairly well and you're sort of drained. And it was largely because of the economics of theater, there just wasn't that much new or interesting stuff coming along. So I was trying to get bored. I get the little feeling when I read... A.O. Scott reviewing the seventh X-Men movie after a while, where I'm like, man, A.O. Scott already got it out when he reviewed the fourth X-Men movie. Well, I think there's something to be said for critics having a statute of limitations. I think everyone in these jobs, you can stay there until you're carted out, basically. They're tenured jobs. And when I... I have a history of leaving tenured jobs. When I I left, uh, people were, how could you possibly leave it? But I'd done it about 12 years. Two, I'd say there are two other factors, one of which actually involves my relationship to New York Magazine all these years later. But the first one was my mother, who I was very close to, and it was a fairly young woman, and who had sort of inculcated in me the whole idea of going to the theater and the arts and writing, was killed in a car crash. Uh, and, and, and it happened a month after I got married for a second time. And... It was this huge change in my life, and I really felt, particularly since my mother hung on in a coma for a month in a shock trauma center in Baltimore near where it happened, um, spending all that time there, I don't know, the theater, particularly the theater at that time, seemed very uh, trivial to me. And I tried to quit the paper, actually, then, and then the wonderful editor, Joe Lelyveld, who was then managing editor of the paper, said, you can't make a decision in a state of grief give yourself another season, take some time off. I took the summer off and then came back, and at the end of a season, I did quit. But also my writing had, had started to change, and a huge factor there was an editor who I never heard of, uh, who was then in his late 20s, who was a junior, junior editor Esquire named Adam Moss, who called me up blind at the Times in 1987, so the last, beginning of the last third of my tenure, and proposed that I do a big piece for him, a 10,000-word piece, an essay that to some extent was about the arts and about the theater, but also news-related. It was a piece inspired by, from his end, by the AIDS crisis. He wanted me to write a piece about how gay culture had had an impact on American culture in modern times seen through the prism at that moment when people were just dropping dead, particularly in the theater AIDS. It was around the time Rock Hudson died that Adam found me. And I didn't want to do the piece. I said, I can't, I can't do this kind of writing. I'm used to writing drama reviews. And he, as I would learn, here I am working with him uh, almost 30 years later, or about 30 years later, he was insistent that I try it. And he came up with creative ways for me to do it. It was also an encyclopedic idea. It's a book idea. Yeah, really. And, and he figured out a way for me to do it. it was an, and it was really an exhilarating experience. It was a piece that caused us a little bit of commotion. And I think after that, I never was quite content with just writing drama reviews. And ultimately, 
I became a columnist, and, and by the time I became a columnist, uh, started to become a columnist in the early 90s, Adam had gravitated partially in my urging and encouragement to the Times, where he would ultimately become the editor of the Sunday Times magazine, and my first columns before I joined the op-ed page of the Times were written for the back page of the Times magazine, edited by Adam, with whom I work to this day. Very few writers I've had on this show talk um, as much about their audience. Like you, you, you sound like when you talk about theater reviews that you have a very keen sense of who's reading them, who is this person, what preconceptions do they come with, and you've now radically shifted your audience by making that move. Well, I, I have no idea who reads. <laughs> I think once I became a columnist to writing opinions stuff, and particularly given how journalism has changed and how the internet has changed everything, not only do you not know necessarily who's reading you, but where they're reading you. I was still at the Times. I was working on a uh, show, developing a show that never happened at HBO that starred James Gandolfini. This is in the mid-2007, towards the end of my time at the Times. And one day he said to me, you know, I really enjoy your column in the Huffington Post. And I said, Oh, and I realized he had no idea I wrote for the Times. He saw, you know, Huffington Post like aggregating, aggregating it. And just to, and that was a real, you know, and, and so who the hell knows and who's, yeah. you know. And you can't think about it. And even when I was drama critic, I always felt if I start, if you become self-conscious in that way and think you're writing for some ideal reader, first of all, you'll be wrong and you'll become constipated and probably dishonest as a writer. You've got to stick true to yourself. You can't pander to an audience, no matter what job you're in as a writer. As an opinion writer, does that audience uh, bite back? Well, the only thing I can compare it to is reviewing, and yeah, they all bite back. If you have an opinion, I'm sure whether it's, a, forget about whether it's theater or politics, if it's about sports or yeah. fashion or food, doesn't really matter. People are going to, readers are going to bite back, and they should. You know, everyone's entitled to, everyone's a critic, everyone should have an opinion, and and people, uh, you're not laying down the law, and people should debate it. I do think, though, when I look at um, younger people who are not necessarily doing your job, but maybe are doing some of the jobs that have replaced those jobs, right, right. there is like a greater emphasis on sort of, wow, oh, let's, like, let's keep it positive. Like, I'm not going to like, you know, you go on BuzzFeed, uh, you don't see people starting fights in the same way. And I'm wondering as like a young person, as you dipped into this world, like how do you develop the, the skin, the, the thickness of skin for those kind of roles? You just have to do it. And not everyone's cut out for it. But, you know, even when I was in college, when I was, I ran the editorial page of uh, a, a campus that was very radicalized, it was the height of the Vietnam War, the Cambodian invasion. Uh, I ran the page for a year. We had unbelievable fights about editorial, all of them probably on the left, left versus first, kind of a much stronger version of sort of the Hillary Bernie, yes. much, much stronger. But one of the things we fought about was indeed Gene McCarthy versus Bobby Kennedy when they were both you know, running against the war and against uh, Johnson. So maybe it came from that training. But, you know, even when I was in high school, my best friend in high school, we ran the public high school paper, Woodrow Wilson High School in Washington, D.C. We ran editorial in favor of home rule for the District of Columbia. It was banned. The paper was banned by the school. We went to the Washington Post and Washington Star and... <laughs> you know, rang a, a siren about how we've been censored by the public school system. And 
the school wanted to throw us out. It was the time we were applying to colleges. And I don't know, we just uh, took it in stride. So maybe it's growing up in Washington, who knows? Something in my DNA, I guess. Hey, I'm gonna pause things here for a quick word from our sponsor, Casper, the sleep brand that created the one perfect mattress directly sold to consumers, eliminating the commission-driven inflated prices that have you depressed when you're trying to buy a mattress. They've got an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price with springy latex foam, supportive memory, all kinds of words that make you feel like you're sleeping in a nice cocoon. That's how I feel on my Casper mattress. Time Magazine agreed with me, named it one of the best inventions of 2015. In fact, it's now the most awarded mattress of the decade. The best part, in my opinion, is that you can try it for 100 days with no risk at all. If you don't like it, they'll come pick it up. So I want you to go to casper.com slash longform, use promo code longform, and as a listener to the show, you'll get 50 bucks off and free shipping and returns. 50 bucks off this mattress that is going to change your life. Thank you, Casper. Here I am back with Frank Rich. Is it difficult after sort of this long a period not to see every election as an echo of so many elections past. I mean, I talk to my mother, when I try and talk to my mother, not to put you in the uh, age group of it, but uh, I'm like, oh yeah, you know, Bernie Sanders, she's like, let me tell you about my experiences with the Eugene McCarthy campaign. You know, it's everything feels like an, an echo at a certain point. Um, and you, you see online often, like a lot of people are covering politics or this is their first election or this, or, you know, if they're a real veteran, they were there for the first Obama election cycle. And you bring this depth of many more elections. I wonder like how that makes it different to cover for you. You know, I'm not covering the election as a beat reporter. Mm. And I think there's a lot to be said for young beat reporters who aren't uh, uh, necessarily have huge experience and can't have had it, to have fresh and interesting and often to me, you know, um, energizing responses to what's going on. If you've covered a lot of elections, you can get a bit jaded. And I have to say, one of the things I like about my writing in New York is I'm not obligated to write constantly about the election if I don't want. And if this had been a Jeb Bush versus Hillary uh, Clinton race, as everyone seemed to have thought a year or so ago, I think I would have taken a gun to my head rather than having to, to do another, you know, Clinton versus Bush. The truth is, some of my background, and some of it's historical. I mean, I, my current piece has to do with elections I did not cover, the 76 and 80 elections and the, the Reagan ascent. Yeah. Uh, that I just know historically and know as someone who's alive at the time, but also from research and reading and reporting, I think it's very useful to understand what's going on now. But I, I feel blessed, even though it's terrible for the country, the Trump, the Trump phenomenon is, is something fresh. It has resemblances to other things, whether in one way, like the Reagan uh, sentence, I, I talk about in my piece, but also, as many people have pointed out, there's a George Wallace piece of it, there's a Huey Long and Father Coughlin piece to it, historically. But to have someone who's so unprepared to hold public office, who's complete vulgarian, doesn't really have an ideology, get this far is fascinating. And, the, and, you know, and the Bernie Sanders thing, which I haven't written about hardly at all, is also interesting and I think is something different 
from McCarthy. There's certain superficial similarities, but it's, it's different in a lot of ways. And the truth is, McCarthy did have an avid youth following, but was not a very, not a passionate politician the way Sanders is. And uh, it's hard to dis- characterize, even uh, ideologically. When you start seeing how the cards are falling, so we got about five months pretty much have a, I'm going to get yelled at for saying this, but we, I think, I believe have a Clinton-Trump race coming. So knowing that you don't have to check off all the boxes, you don't have to be the beat reporter, you don't have to profile the candidates, how do you plan your coverage? I go by the gut. I want to write pieces that I enjoy writing, that matter to me, that I hope will matter to readers, and that are interesting for me to to, uh, work on. I don't want to be bored. I feel if I'm bored, readers are going to be bored. And so I've actually loved writing the pieces of this cycle, but I've, you know, I do these mostly weekly dialogues, but the big pieces, which are the 5,000, 6,000 word pieces, I am looking for things I want to explore myself that I want to learn about Mm. and investigate and stories I want to tell. I really believe, I even felt this when I wrote short columns at the Times. I really believe, and even writing theater reviews, I believe in a narrative I, as a writer. That's just something I enjoy doing, a beginning, middle, and end. It may come out of my love of the theater. I always told people, when I, I wrote a book uh, about 10 years ago called The Greatest Story Ever Sold about how the Bush administration sold the Iraq War, and I structured it like a Broadway musical. The, the, the end of part one, the intermission, if you will, of the book, ended with a big production number, uh, Mission Accomplished. Yeah. And, uh, and then the second act began with a quiet sort of, where's the WMD? You know, like a quiet number. I have uh, some ideas that just come, come up out of my subconscious. I bat them around with Adam, one of the best, one of two great editors I've ever dealt with in my career, and follow my instinct. And what I don't feel is an obligation. No, I do not oblige to write a piece comparing Clinton's economic policy to Trump's ersatz economic policy. That's not my job. And that's not, you know, other people can do it and I like to read it if it interests, if it's a subject that interests me, but I try to do something that's more idiosyncratic and personal. I mean, I think that comes across in your writing and that there's sort of a freshness brought to each piece. It does not feel like, oh God, like we've got to cover this presidential election cycle. But thank you. I'm interested when I was a kid and I remember watching presidential uh, campaign politics of many kinds, I always kind of remember the politicians being fairly boring, you know, conservative tie. And then you would get the, the pundit class, the sort of the talking heads on cable. And that was sort of where a lot of the excitement and sort of muckering you know, kind of stuff came from. And it feels to me in this election cycle, particularly with Trump, but just everything about it, the election itself has become entertainment. I mean, Donald Trump is more entertaining than anyone who's ever going to cover Donald Trump or comment on Donald Trump. It almost seems like the presidential election as a, a product has upped its entertainment quotient. I mean, when I was watching the Republican debates, I've never seen a political product that was that entertaining, just in a pure well, way. I, I think you're completely right. And we can debate whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Absolutely. But, but keep in mind, well, see, when I, the first president I, election I ever remember, and I was 10, 10 or 11, was the Kennedy-Nixon. And 
particularly when we were watching it, the Eisenhower era, you know, Eisenhower was like this this elderly guy who played golf and whatever. I was born after World War II, so I didn't know about that piece of his history. And it was incredible when Kennedy, this young guy, I mean, to me, I was, he seemed old still, but younger than everyone else and yeah. dashing, and he was going to plays and movies in Washington and had this glamorous wife and was witty in the debate. Then we got elected. He had press conferences where he quoted like the stand-up comic who was making fun of him, you know, Vaughn <laughs> Meter and all that stuff. Ever since then, there's been an effort by politicians to try to increase that entertainment footprint. Even Nixon, you know, in 1968, Roger Ailes got a hold of him and tried to make him look, as Ailes said at the time, like someone who didn't look like he'd been in a, in a closet in a, hanging on a hanger all night. <laughs> um, and then, of course, Reagan really, really uh, uh, used show business. And Obama, too. I mean, I think a particularly low moment of Obama, or cheesy moment, was in 2008 convention in Denver, which I was at when he had those, that faux coliseum put in the Denver, you know. Yeah, it was in the Denver Stadium. It was ridiculous. It was giving his acceptance speech at the 2008 convention. Yeah. So everyone's susceptible to it. What's fascinating about Trump is like Reagan, trained entertainer, schlockier. Reagan was a fairly schlocky movie star. It wasn't really like a B-level at most movie star. I would say Trump, by the standards of American entertainment, is C or D-level. Yeah. But he's competing against people like Hillary Clinton who aren't even in the game of, of entertainment. And so, you know, the Marco Rubios and Jeb Bushes and Rick Perry didn't even know what hit them. You know, they, they, they were just like, what? And so he's created a challenge for his opponents and a challenge for the press and, and, and a, a challenge for the American public to try to separate that style, if that's the right word, from substance. But it is entertaining. And one thing, there's a, it's a constant refrain on the left that the media made Donald Trump. They're giving him all this uh, free airtime. He's commanding the airtime by making news, often in the most deplorable ways, you know, saying racist things, being a bully, being horrible, you know, foaming at the mouth practically. But unfortunately, that's the world we live in. It is news. And uh, people like Hillary Clinton are going to have to contend with it and find ways to make news that themselves. How do you write about a entertainer instead? I mean, you can't really write about the policies because you can't take them too seriously. At a certain point, you're just writing about the show. In my own case, I can't speak for everyone. Everyone has their own approach to it. If you're, look, if you're a beat reporter, you've got to write about the show and you've got to fact check it, uh, which, you know, I feel the press has done a good job. I mean, every fact Trump says just yeah. about is wrong. At this and, point, you could just stop fact checking yeah, and say 80% wrong. 80% wrong and 70% the opposite of what he said last week. What interests me about it is why the country is susceptible to it. And so it gets back to... Let me take a theater analogy for the hell of it. I never liked the music or musicals of Andrew Lloyd Webber. I could not understand why shows when I was a drama critic like Cats and Phantom of the Opera and, and Starlight Express became these phenomena that were so... It didn't matter that I trashed them in the Times. People just loved them. They sold out. But it fascinated me, and I often... In not necessarily in the original reviews, but in subsequent essays for the paper or whatever, I would try to examine the phenomenon because I do think it, it's sociologically and sometimes even psychologically interesting why 
things are hits in American culture and and why are people loving Game of Thrones at this moment? It's it's interesting and because sometimes the thing that's an enormous phenomenon ten years ago, you look at it now and you think, what? Why were? And people who even liked it ten years ago say, why did I like that? Yeah, you know, certain old movies, old TV shows. So, to me, the interface between Trump and the American public and the political class and the pundit class is fascinating. Paul Ryan, who played Hamlet for weeks, deciding whether he would endorse Trump. Last week he endorsed Trump, called him a racist because of his uh, uh, trashing of uh, the judge, you know, as a Mexican, Curiel, and and now saying yes, he is a racist, but I still am voting for him for president. Well, that's to me really as interesting or yeah. more interesting than Trump. You just tuned in now, and that was the first thing was Paul Ryan saying. I uh, acknowledge that Donald Trump is a racist, but uh, I'm voting for him. You didn't. That would be a shocking place to enter. A, the exactly. So, what is he thinking? You know, there are a lot of conservative pundits. You know, the the, the Charles Krauthammers and David Brooks, who have claimed Paul Ryan as the soul and the, the the intellect of the Republican Party. Why are most of them? There's some exceptions. George Will being one of them, remaining quiet when their hero signs on to this buffoon. That's great stuff to think about, to write about, to try to analyze, to put into a narrative, to look at all the moving pieces. And so it's endlessly fascinating for me. Trump, I get. He's never going to say anything that's more than a, you know, a millimeter deep about anything. I, I think I understand him completely. But the way the world has responded to him, he's gotten this far in our country, is fascinating about the country. So when I was growing, so growing up, the pundits, you know, this is the evangelical vote in America. You know, a Republican's never going to make it, you know, who, who doesn't please them. So there was all of these, like, sort of hard truths about um, American politics that would get trotted out or molded onto the current election. And I feel like with this Trump, this Trump thing, and maybe I, I may be myopic, but it seems like this is a shattering of many of those pundit ideas. I agree. And indeed, the first piece I wrote about Trump last fall, and my point was exactly that. If nothing else, he is showing up. Pundits have been applying all these rules that are wrong. Uh, they've been proven wrong at every single step of the way. And a perfect example is evangelicals will never go for this guy. Yeah. Uh, but there are many, many more. He's shown up that uh, our great hope of sort of 538-like data analysis and data and metadata is going to predict uh, what's going to happen wrong. Otherwise, Marco Rubio would be uh, the candidate sure. now. Predictions about how the Republican Party hierarchy would behave when confronted with this interloper, wrong. The whole reliance on consultants and strategists because they know what's best and can tell you what to do wrong, because Trump changing now, but he didn't use any of them. He didn't even use any pollsters. Paid advertising, always making a difference, wrong. We could go through, I went through a whole list in this piece. Almost, it, he absolutely, in a bull in a china shop way, I mean, it wasn't deliberate on his part. He doesn't think about anything, really. I don't think he thinks at all. But just by being this sort of, you know, guy with a machine gun spraying fire uh, in the political system 
decimated it and showed how many emperors have no clothes. And to me, you know, people talk about historically 1948, the Chicago Tribune famous headline, you know, Dewey defeats uh, Truman. Well, we had this on steroids daily from almost every major journalistic outlet uh, in the country. That evangelical vote thing, those were like a weird mass of people in my mind for like right. 20, 20 years. And now I'm kind of like, I don't even know who's out there. I don't know. What, maybe this was all lies. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think it shows that, that uh, a lot of what the angrier parts of the, of the electorate, both on the left and the right, say is true, that the elites whether they be liberal or conservative, Republican or Democratic, are out of touch and don't know the people that they're trying to appeal to. And I think that in a smaller scale compared to what happened with Republicans and Trump, but the way that Hillary Clinton was and the Democratic Party in general was blindsided by Bernie Sanders is another example of that. I was blindsided by Bernie Sanders. So it shows that everyone who thought they had all the answers doesn't have them, and there's something refreshing about that. And whatever happens in this election, and I certainly wouldn't predict, and I don't even have a secret prediction for my own amusement, because yeah. uh, I genuinely don't know, there's going to have to be some rebuilding and rethinking in both parties and some new leadership in this country. As uh, politics shifts to entertainment, you have also adapted or worked on ad the adaptation of politics to a legitimate entertainment product, which is uh, Veep on HBO. How did, how did that come about in the first place? In 2008, when I was still at the Times, and HBO was sort of changing management, the head of it had left, and new people had come in, and it was a period when a lot of HBO's hits of that period, The Sopranos, Sex and the City, Entourage, Six Feet Under, were all aging and about to expire. And I was one of several people sort of out of the box that the new management reached out to to sort of just join a discussion uh, about what HBO was doing or should be doing. And um, I jumped at it, I think because of my old theater gene and because I liked the people at HBO that I knew. And part of it was I could be involved in, if I wanted to, in developing or producing shows. So. What was it that they saw in you that, that you that seemed like a person to call on to HBO in that way? I think the combination of uh, uh, orientation, both news and show business and theater. So what did the Times think when you're like... Well, they, their attitude was, you can't work for another media company. This is, of course, an attitude that has completely changed. Yeah, because I was going to say. Now they're desperate for everybody. Could, could you please make a media company here? Exactly, exactly. I won the argument because at that they couldn't say I couldn't work as a sideline for another, for a cable television network, because as it happened at that time, he only did it for one year, a fellow op-ed columnist was Bill Crystal, who not only worked uh, uh, for another cable network, Fox News, but was constantly on air, essentially attacking the Times. Yeah. So they couldn't really say, oh, you can't do... And you were like, I want to do something uh, fictional here. Yeah, exactly. Totally unrelated. Exactly. And yeah. so, so anyway, part of my mandate was to, you know, possibly get involved in some shows and develop some things. And without uh, going into tedious detail, I sold the movie In the Loop that Armando Iannucci, the British director, had done. I saw it by happenstance at a screening in New York about the run-up to the Iraq war, even though Iraq is never mentioned in it. I knew him as a wonderful satirist of uh, British politics, 
uh, from his hit British show, The Thick of It. But in, in the loop, it was partially about British politics, about 10 Downing Street, but part of it was set in Foggy Bottom and about State Department. And I thought, oh, this might be the guy who could do something that might be a smart Washington show for HBO. And after a lot of intervening events, he came up with, I had not met him, he came up with what would become Veep. And we were off to the races, you know, and we made the pilot just as I was leaving the Times to come to New York Magazine. Even by then, I was three years into my work at HBO, I fully didn't expect it to become a series. You always expect these things not to be picked up. And then um, it sort of took over my life over the past five years and continues to, but it's been a completely joyous experience. And it's one thing that's different from the journalism I do. It's almost nothing like it for me, my own experience of it, because first of all, it's a fictional world. It's an alternative world. It's set in the present, but we never reference Obama or Trump or Clinton. We never refer to a president after Nixon. Which I never noticed until HBO came out with the newsroom, and then I was like, wow, it's so awkward that they are referencing this. And not only in that way is, is Veep not Aaron Sorkin-like, but unlike West Wing, his, his great political show, in our show, Truth in the American Way, never triumph. <laughs> Everyone is venal. Yes. Uh, uh, one of my favorite gags from the pilot, which didn't make it into the show, was... Uh, Two characters get into a fight in the office, in the vice president's office, over a, um, a, a wall outlet, a socket, or who, who has more power to recharge their BlackBerry first. And that's sort of Veep in a nutshell. People <laughs> so it, it care about their power for themselves so much it gets down to the literally the minutiae of I, my BlackBerry is ahead of yours in line. And so it's sort of a wonderful thing to be a part of uh, the process of creating a show out of the absurdity of politics without ever using current events, although we've had this weird thing where we've constantly anticipated current events. Months ahead of time, these things are in the can, you know, from the email, Hillary Clinton's email controversy to you name it. Um, And and the other thing, by the way, that's different from journalism and what I love is it's collaborative. And, you know, if if you're a writer, you were facing a computer screen and you were alone. It's very solitary. Um, here, while I'm involved in the writing, I don't write scripts. I have no interest in writing scripts. I'm involved in sort of every part of the process. Our last episode of this season ends on June 26th. The morning after, Dave Mandel, the showrunner, is convening the writers, plus me, into a room uh, like this, like a conference room in Hollywood, and start figuring out the story for next season. What happens to each character? You know, start putting it on whiteboards. And we'll do that for six or seven weeks, and until uh, mid-August. Uh, and it's really a fascinating full work day every day well, what if Jonah did this? Or what if Amy did this? Or what if this didn't happen? And, you know, would this work? And it's really fun. I mean, it's, yeah. make, it's make-believe. You have no obligation to pay attention to a single fact. I mean, we have to get details right about D.C., but we, it's completely unjournalistic. It's a, gr- it's a complete escape hatch mentally for me from writing about uh, the real world of politics. All right, I have a final question for you. You have two sons? I, I do. Uh, one of whom has been on this show. 
uh, Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel Rich. Check out his podcast. The other of which uh, was a writer at Saturday Night Live. Has written a lot of humor stuff for New Yorker. I think he has a book coming out. He's had several books, several and books. he has his own half-hour comedy. And he has his own half-hour. So, what is the secret? To, Simon, I, we should say. Simon, um, what is the secret to raising good writers? It was never their parents' intention to raise them to be writers. It's oh, a very good. precarious profession. So it was discussed, and you and you yeah. went no on the issue. My feeling about raising kids is, if they have a passion they should be allowed to pursue it. And the, the saddest thing for me is a kid who doesn't have a passion. Now, the passion could be sports. It could be playing chess. It could be music. It could be collecting baseball cards. It doesn't really matter as long as it's, it's, it's a passion. I think when we look back at Nathaniel and Simon, their mother, my f- former wife, is an editor in book publishing, their stepmother, very involved with them from a very young age, um, from they were, when they were little children, is a writer, a journalist, and a novelist. So they see three parents basically working all the time in, in that world. But we support everything they do. You know, and if they, you know, there was a period when one of them, oh, I'm going to be a rock musician. Fine, if you want to do it, you want to skip college and go touring with your band, I'm putting <laughs> sort of air quotes around it, okay. One of the boys at one point wanted to be a bike messenger in New York as a possible fledgling career for a while. Whatever, as long as something they really want to do. The other thing is that stay out of it. If they want to show us something, whether they're in eighth grade or now, they want to show us something to read that they've written, dying to read it, of course, but we're not going to force our way into it. Similarly, never force our uh, work on them. I never asked my kids to feel, oh, you have to read what your father is writing or read my books or you have to watch Veep. None of that. And so it really, I think we we encouraged them once it was clear what they wanted to do. And uh, what's really interesting too is they're four years apart in age and they're very, they're very different because Simon is, they both are novelists, but Simon very much cares about humor and has a career, a parallel career in show business now in addition to his books and New Yorker writings. And Nathaniel is um, a novelist whose novels are not humor novels and who is writes journalism, which Simon has no interest in, and writes criticism of all things. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> neither of them have any interest in the theater. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I did take, take them to a lot of plays. They were like, Oh, God, you know, shoot me now at a certain point. Well, it's got to feel good at least that they're not, like, imitating you exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exa- no, they're, they're very different personalities. Um, obviously, I love them both enormously and in and, and, and awe of. Uh, I think they're both fantastic writers. Well, thank you uh, very much, Frank Rich. Thank you. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much to Frank Rich. Thanks to New York Magazine for offering me their office. Uh, Thank you to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our wonderful editor. Uh, Editor, Genoise Bauman. Uh, To our intern, Courtney Harrell, uh, and uh, our sponsors, uh, of course, MailChimp, and the wonderful people at Casper, I just woke up on one of their mattresses. It was delightful. Uh, We'll be back next week. (laughs) 
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.